welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest, and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who can't go to church for two weeks in a row and feels weird about that. It's true. You were talking to me about this before we started recording, <laughs> that you were having weird church feelings. Yeah, I just, it's very, it's very centering for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I don't know, I don't, I don't like missing it. That makes sense. Have you thought, do you go to church when you travel at like other churches ever? I do, but I'm traveling, I'm flying on two Sunday mornings in a row. Oof, no good. Yeah. Don't like that. So not a lot of options. No. I guess you could go to Wednesday church. Is, do the Anglicans do Wednesday church? I mean, there are things that I can do, and... You will. I mean, I'll try. I don't know. <laughs> I think there's actually something at the the cathedral next weekend, or this Sunday, in the evening, I think. Maybe, or maybe it's next Sunday. I don't know. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you. <laughs> and we are actually mixing up our episode a little bit. Normally, Brian talks to me, and I ask questions, but... A few weeks ago, I guess almost a month ago now, uh, Brian and I were at a wedding, and I was in the car on the way home from the wedding, not with Brian, having a conversation with some friends of ours who listened to the show, and also lamenting the fact that St. Hildegard doesn't have a patronage. It is truly a travesty. It's really a travesty. And I was, (laughs) I wouldn't say drunk, but I definitely had many mimosas. And we started to brainstorm things that Hildegard could be patron saint of. And we decided that, I decided, really, that Hildegard should be the patron saint of podcasts. And I sent this text to Brian to this effect. And I am skeptical. There are lots of things that I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll I'll give her. Podcasts, I don't know. And so Brian has challenged me to write an episode of my own, detailing my argument for why Hildegard should be patron saint of podcasts. And while I agree that maybe the argument is a little tenuous, I still think it's a fun conversation to have. And also, probably not the most tenuous argument for a patronage that we've had on this show. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So, I'm taking the reins today. Uh, We are going to talk a little bit about the history of St. Hildegard, and then I'm going to show you my thoughts on why I think she would be the patron saint of podcasts. I'm excited to hear it. Also, I don't know what to do with myself because I don't have notes. It's true. (laughs) And I do, which is very weird. So this is already strange for both of us. Now, Hildegard was a patron of ours on the Patronage Pop Quiz in an episode that I meant to look up the episode number of and then did not. Uh, (laughs) So some of the history that you might hear here feels a little familiar, but I tried to expand it a little bit more for this particular occasion. Full disclosure, there's a lot of Germanic words in this that I'm not good at pronouncing. Oh, it's not so me this time. So <laughs> everybody bear with me when we get to some of these weird words. Okay, so Hildegard was born in the year 1098 to a family of lower nobility, but still nobility, in spawn time. She was the tenth of many children, and she was kind of sickly from birth, but because she was... The tenth child, uh-huh. apparently that meant that she got promised to the church. I also just love many children. We don't know how many. Well, some places say that there were only seven birth certificates, but she's talked about as the tenth child. 
Okay. So there's a lot of questions about like where the 10 number comes from. You know, record keeping was hard. It's true. Uh, but she was really sickly from birth. And Hildegard states that from a very young age, she experienced visions. She says she was three years old when she saw a vision first of the shade of the living light, is what she called it. And she was five years old when she grasped that others wouldn't understand what she was experiencing. Even at this young age, Hildegard knew that her visions were a gift from God. And partially because of these visions, or maybe because of this political rule about promising children to the church, Hildegard's parents offered her as an oblate to the Benedictine monastery in Diesbodenburg. Ooh, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah. And she took her vows on All Saints Day in 1112. Now, some people think that she was paired with a distant cousin who was only about six years older than her, and this woman's name was Judah von Spondheim. And Judah became an anchoress in this monastery in Diesbodenburg. So it wasn't a convent, but there was an assorted group of devout women who lived in this monastery. Okay, and so she was a monastery groupie. Basically. <laughs> and it was in part because they had interred, I guess is the right word, this anchoress in the monastery. And Judah was this anchoress, and an anchoress was someone who acted as a symbolic anchor to the world for God. And so she closed herself up into a one-room shelter. She had a small window in which food was passed, and she refused to be taken out. Okay. And some anchoresses were like built next to where the chapel was, or had windows into the chapel so that they could sit in on services or like have a little door so that they could go in and out of the church, which seems really nice. And I don't know exactly what the geography of this particular anchoress was. So I don't know why, but in my head, anchoresses are now those two old men from the Muppets. Oh, Statler and Waldorf? Yes. (laughs) And they're just like heckling church from their little window. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they're calmer than that. I feel like being an anchoress is like a very solitary and like sad thing. But I just, in my mind, I know that they have like little rooms. So there's probably like a bed and a chair or something. But I imagine them like a uh, stylite style, just like standing oh, no. the whole time, <laughs> which would be way more uncomfortable if you had to stand inside a brick box. Yeah. Although, I mean, you can lean. I guess there's some walls to lean on there. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But Judah got interred as an anchoress and her and Hildegard were sort of best friends. They were connected. Aww. And Judah was the one who taught Hildegard how to read and write. Okay. But Judah did not have a ton of knowledge in, like, more than the basics. So she taught Hildegard how to read, how to write, and just enough music to be able to sing and chant in church, but not enough reasoning to be able to create her own biblical interpretations or be able to, like, really dig in deep to biblical texts. That's fair. I I can't imagine you would get too many formal teachers coming by your... Anchorage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So they learned the basics, but there wasn't a ton of deep intentional learning happening here. But they could then like read a Bible in Latin and sing in church and do kind of the the bare necessities in terms of education at that time. And now Judah died in 1136. And from there, Hildegard became elected the magistrate of this community. So again, we're not a convent yet. We're just a community of women who live attached to this monastery. (laughs) <laughs> Which I think is kind of strange. Yeah, but we're, we're just groupies. They're just groupies, but they're really <laughs> devout groupies. Uh, groupies for the Lord. <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, and then at that point, 
Um, the abbot of Dies Bodenberg asks Hildegard if they want to get their own convent and for Hildegard to become the prioress of this. Ooh. But in order for them to do that as Dies Bodenberg, that convent would then become under the authority of this abbot. And Hildegard decided that she and the women who would become nuns wanted a little bit more independence for themselves. And so they asked the abbot if they could move to Rupertsburg. Now, this was going to be, like, a huge step down in quality of life for them. Mm -hmm. They were going from their sort of, like, established complex that was made of stone and doing all this stuff to something that was going to be way more temporary, like, way more stripped down. So they're asking for a difficult move and something that's going to not make their lives particularly cushier. But it was really important to Hildegard and to these nuns who were with her to become independent from the monastery, especially now that they didn't have an anchoress sort of locking them in this place physically. Okay. So they they valued the freedom more than the comfort. Yes, for sure. And the abbot said no at first. He was like, no, right. you're not going to move. <laughs> and then this is the crazy part. Uh, he didn't relent until Hildegard was stricken by an illness that kept her paralyzed and unable to move from her bed. Ooh. And she attributed this event to God's unhappiness at not allowing her to follow God's orders and move her nuns to Rupertsburg. Can you imagine that conversation? <laughs> This is your fault. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And it was only when the abbot tried to physically move Hildegard himself and couldn't do it that he granted the nuns their own monastery. <laughs> she was just like lamp. <laughs> I imagine her like dead weight. Yeah. Yeah. And he just like tried to like drag her. Yeah. But I it wasn't going to work. So that didn't work. So finally he was like, all right. If you'll, if we can get you moving, we'll give you the monastery or the <laughs> convent at Rupertsburg. So Hildegard and about 20 nuns moved to Rupertsburg in 1150. And from there, she met a monk named Volmar, who served as the provost of this monastery and became Hildegard's confessor and scribe. And then in 1165, they found a second monastery for her nuns at Ebingen. Okay. Is what I'm going to go with there. And now Volmar, the provost of this monastery, becomes an incredibly important part of her life. Because this is when she first confesses to someone other than Judah von Spondheim that she's been having these visions her whole life. Okay. So she's kept this super secret. So how old is she at this point? 43. Okay, wow. Yeah, so she's way late in her life when all of this happens. And she confesses to Volmar about her visions, who then goes to the Archbishop of Mainz and tells him all about it. Damn it, Volmar. <laughs> I know. But I think it actually works out for the best because they have her write a journal of all of her visions and they bring them to the archbishop and the archbishop confirms them as directly from God. So what she's known since she was literally... Because he knows. Of course. This thing that she has known innately since she was five years old, now a bunch of dudes have told her is correct. There you go. I think you understand the church. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> Guys, Sunday School for Heathens is over. <laughs> so they say, all right, you are authentically getting visions from God. Now, would you please write them all down? <laughs> so Volmar is appointed as her scribe to help her record in writing all of these visions that she's having. And these visions turn into her first finished work, which is called Sivias. And it was written from 1141 to 1152, so about 10 years. Okay. And it consists of 26 visions that are described as both prophetic and apocalyptic in form. Yes. So we're getting a little revelation-y here. <laughs> and they tell a magnificent history of salvation from creation 
through the order of redemption and development of the church to the perfection at the end of the end times. All right. So it's like a whole cycle of life happens over the course of these 26 visions. Fascinating. I know, right? (laughs) I wish I could find more details, but the original rating of this got lost in 1945. So I suspect... In 1945? There's no excuse. I know. But I think there are printed versions still, but the, like, OG written version got destroyed. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that, like, all all records of it were lost in 1945. No, no. There are still versions of it somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere there are still versions of this, I swear. The Sivias ends with the Symphony of Heaven, which is an early version of one of her musical compositions. So in addition to being a writer, she was also a musical composer. And I have to pull up the name of the instrument that she played, because I've never heard of it before, and I'm very confused. But she thinks she probably also learned this around when uh, Judah and her were learning as kids. It's called a solitary. It's a stringed instrument of the Zither family. Of the what family? The zither family. What's a zither? Like a little harp thing. Okay. So it's some sort of stringed harp shenanigan. (laughs) And so she wrote this symphony that ends her big work. But she also wrote, among other things, a collection of 77 songs forming a liturgical cycle for the church year. She also wrote a musical drama called the Ordo Viditum, which is essentially a morality play. Nice. um, About whose subject the struggle between the seven virtues and the devil over the destiny of a female soul. Ooh. Yeah. Fun. And so she is both super musical and also super feminist. Yeah, I'm I'm also just stuck on how she broke up the year into 77 pieces. I'm very curious. I don't know. But a lot of writings say that like Americans mostly know her for her liturgical music. So this has become her like her big thing. Sure. But in addition to all of her musical writings, she also wrote two different scientific and medicinal texts, much like the saint we talked about last week, whose name I can't pronounce now, uh, the French guy. Um, I like uh, like priest and confession, forget what we talk about as soon as we're done talking about Great. it. Great. But the guy from the <laughs> last episode, they had a medicinal garden attached to their monastery when they moved to Rupertsburg. And she wrote two different texts about the medicinal uses of plants and animals and flowers. His name is Fiacre. Fiacre, thank you. (laughs) For all of those things together. And people started coming from all over the world to Rupertsburg to meet with Hildegard and to get healed by her in a lot of times. And a lot of it was like, all right, go to the garden and grab this thing and grow this thing and do this. And I don't think she was in particularly attributed to any like laying ons of hands of miracles, but she was definitely known as a scientific mind in addition to a musical mind and as a mystic. Great. Yeah. So she is the female uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Exactly. That's exactly right. Somebody in an article I read about her said that if she had been born male, they would have called her a Renaissance man. We can call her a Renaissance woman. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and so throughout all of this, she held ongoing correspondence with four popes, Eugene the Third, Anastasius the Fourth, Hadrian the Fourth, and Alexander the Third, among many other influential leaders and thinkers uh, of her time, including a, another saint named Bernard of Clairvaux. Put a pin in that one for later. Okay. And... More than 300 of her letters survive today. That's pretty good. I know, right? Given that she existed in the 1100s? Yeah. That's a lot of letters. Um, and she died in September of 1179 in her abbey in Rupertsburg. Nice. Yeah. So during her time, Hildegard received a ton of praise as a saint. 
1228, so not that long after she died, the church initiated a formal canonization process, and it ended without result. <laughs> womp womp. Cool, cool. Yeah, Good cool, job, cool. church. <laughs> yeah. And then in the 16th century, there was a revisit to the previously failed process of her canonization, but nothing happened there either. Of course. Of course. And then in 1979, a community of several Catholic women's associations reapplied for her recognition as a saint and a doctor of the church. And Hildegard of Bingen finally achieved recognition as a saint and a doctor of the church in 2012. Right. Yeah, I remember it was very recent when we talked about her last time. Yeah, but she's also only one of four doctors of the church who are female, I believe. Yeah, I know there's not a lot. Yeah. And it's because Doctor of the Church is something that's designated to people who were thought of as teaching theologians. Yeah. And there just weren't that many of them because women can't preach, but that's its own situation. But as we'll talk about when I start talking about why this should be her patronage, she kind of bent those rules a little bit. And so she counts as a teaching theologian and thus gets to be a Doctor of the Church, which I think is super, super cool. Oh, for sure. You don't have to win me over on just, like, her as a yeah. human. Yeah, we all know that she's the coolest. She's the best. And she has, apparently, a great cookie recipe. Yeah, I know. We didn't even get to the cookies <laughs> in this one. Where was she? Like, no, she wasn't walled up. So I guess she she had access. Yeah. To... And um, I guess the thing that I think makes her cookie recipe interesting that I read a little bit when they're talking about her, like, medicinal and her scientific stuff, is she's really associated with baking with spelt. With what? Spelt. What is spelt? It's a grain. Okay. But it's like a non-traditional grain, I guess you could think of now. And I don't know if uh, spelt is... What a hipster. <laughs> she is such a hipster. And here's the thing. If spelt is in fact gluten-free, which I'm not 100% sure it is, we could also make a case for her being the saint of gluten-free baking. That one I would give you. Yeah. Straight away, if that's true. Yeah. So uh, we'll put a pin in that one, and we'll come back and double-check if spelt is gluten-free. And if it is, then we're going to make her the patron saint of yep. gluten-free baking. Yep, and just in general, celiacs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People afflicted with gluten intolerances everywhere. And we can all make Hildegard cookies, and it'll be great. It'll be lovely. If I had planned ahead more, I would have made Hildegard cookies for this episode. It's all right. <laughs> We've both had a long couple weeks. <laughs> but enough of the cool stuff. Well, I mean, my stuff's going to be cool, but enough of the stuff you already know, Brian. Let's talk a little bit about why she should be the patron saint of podcasts. All right, I'm ready. And I have four main arguments. One of them has to do with variety of knowledge. One has to do with independence of knowledge, connectivity of knowledge, and adult learning. And those are my four points on why I think she should be the patron saint of podcasts. All right. I know you're skeptical. (laughs) And I said this to Brian off mic earlier, but a lot of this basically comes down to, I think if Hildegard was alive today, she would be a podcaster. And that's part of it. And I understand that probably a lot of saints would also have been podcasters because it's like a a mass media thing Uh in a way that they utilized in their own time. But here's some cool ideas why I think specifically that Hildegard would be a great fit for podcasts. All right, let's go for it. Um, First, variety. You can't deny that podcasts come in a bunch of different genres. Podcasts of all, all genres of all kinds across the world. And podcasts have sort of transcended music and moved into other subjects. And, like, it's an audio medium that can be about music and have music in it, but isn't exclusively about music. And Hildegard both has such a unique place in musical history and also such a wide breadth of knowledge that I think that a celebration of this sort of, like, Renaissance woman also fits with the sort of wide breadth of knowledge that comes with the average podcast listener. 
Okay, but here's my challenge. Okay. Do you think she would be more interested in a visual medium because she had so many visions? And that's a good question. And I have a thing here about the way she composed. Um, And I think there might also be something in here about the way she wrote that I think audio mediums actually work really well for her. Okay. Because she wasn't a... I'll just read the quote now. Um, So Mix it up up your... Mix uh, it up my order here. It's fine. Uh, So a lot of Hildegard's music stands out from other music of the time and comes from sort of a place outside of the way music was traditionally learned at the time. Her compositions, quote, stand out from other liturgical music because of the almost improvisory nature of her melodies. They are freer, more wide-ranging, and elaborate than the simple one-octave lines advocated by other composers like her contemporary, Bernard of Clairvaux. All right. Uh, So that's a name I told you we'd hear from a little bit later. And so I think this idea that music feels very intuitive to her, like she had learned really rudimentary music, but she chose to compose not just small things, like she didn't write 10 hymns. She wrote 77 liturgical songs over the course of a calendar. Like that broad arching sense of musicality, I think makes an audio medium a better fit for her than a visual medium. All right. She also essentially wrote an opera. Okay. Which if you think about it, like an opera, a radio play, like those kinds of storytelling in audio totally fit with the way she was running. All right. She did a lot of music. Yeah. Yeah. I think her musicality (laughs) gives her audio. Okay. Just like baseline, we can say like an audio medium fits. All right. I'll take it. Cool. But she wasn't just a musician. She worked in medicine. She worked in science. She worked in religion. She loved to help people with her medicines and her medicinal things. So I could see her hosting a show about religion. I could see her hosting an advice show, um, a gardening show. I want to just listen to the Hildegard Feminist Pep Talk podcast. Are you trying to tell me that Hildegard is basically a McElroy? Yes. I 100%. And the more I talk about her, the more you think, the more she could potentially be a McElroy. She, she is just all of the McElroy. Yes. And, and we're going to continue and it's only going to get weirder. <laughs> but like she became known in the sort of medicinal and science realms for her skills in like diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment. So imagine a like ask an advice show. <laughs> but also imagine a feminist pep talk show with Hildegard. They would all be a lot of fun. They would be. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like I said, this whole idea is the idea of variety. And the fact that she, one, is like a baseline auditory medium person, but the areas within that that she becomes so well known for are so diverse that it fits like she could easily represent a wide variety of podcast subjects. So it's not like she's the patron saint of religious podcasts or the patron saint of music podcasts. She's the patron saint of podcasts because she was a Renaissance woman. Okay. So that's just point number one. All right. We have we have three more points to go. I know you're still on the fence, <laughs> but I see you getting there. I see you getting there. I'm just wondering if she likes too many things to settle into a podcast. I don't know. Well, I think that this next one talks a little bit about that, and the next two will help address some of those concerns. Okay. The idea of independence. Mm-hmm. Um, Hildegard deliberately took a step out of comfort and into independence because it was a priority for her and her nuns to be able to have that space of their own. And podcasting has become such a medium for independent thought and communication. You know, you don't need, I mean, look at our show. You don't need a like huge elaborate setup. You don't need a lot of institutional knowledge. You just need the desire to start 
and a message you want to tell. Yeah, you just need a high opinion of yourself. Yeah. Thinking that other people care what you have to say. And Hildegard <laughs> definitely had that. <laughs> and so I think that this idea that she was super independent means that I think she would like the sort of independent ethos that comes from podcasting. And I mentioned a little bit in her canonization, talking about her being a doctor of the church, she preached even when women were not allowed to preach. She conducted four different preaching tours throughout Germany, speaking to both clergy and laity in chapter houses and in the public, and she mainly denounced clerical corruption and called for reform. Yes. <laughs> she was just, like, such a badass. And that is awesome. I could imagine that if she had access to a medium like podcasting, she her voice would go so much further, and that she would actively want to have these independent voices being distributed far and wide. Sure, that does make sense because she she would never be allowed access to something more mainstream media. Yeah. So a a rogue yeah. podcast would be something that mm-hmm. she would have more access to. Yeah, and I found this quote just about podcasting, but not about Hildegard, that felt sort of right in her ethos. Podcasting has been a platform for passions to spread, less prominent voices to be heard, and knowledge to be shared. And those, I think, are all things that Hildegard would be super, super into. I think she probably would, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of brings me into the next point, which is all about connectivity through podcasts and why I think that connects to Hildegard. In her Sivias, she proposes a model of the universe that resembles an egg. Okay, I'm she, ready. <laughs> she has this idea of this sort of, like, connectivity of, like, everything to everything. Like, it's a web, it's an orb, it's all encapsulated, and it's all connected to itself. And she wrote of the spiritual and physical interconnectivity of man and the universe. Through her work, people have come to understand that the easiest way to achieve this kind of interconnectivity is through man's relationship with the outside world. Okay, I don't understand the egg thing. The the egg (laughs) thing is just like a, like you see sort of like images of it and imagine like an egg like crisscrossed with a bunch of webs. Okay, but there are there... There's not webs in an egg. No, I think it's a shape thing and not an actual egg, like a chicken egg. It's like an egg shape. Okay. So, like, she basically had a round model of the world before there was a round model of the world. And she got it in a vision from God. But this idea that... Score one God. (laughs) Score one God. Um, But this interconnectivity, I think, is something that podcasts are really great at. And that the idea that man can find interconnectivity with both their spiritual and their physical nature... And I think that podcasts are a great outlet for that now. Um, 67 million people listened to podcasts in 2017, which is approximately the same number of people who use Twitter in a given month. So, like, that's the breadth of, I mean, Twitter is huge and is a huge method of communication, as you have seen, stepping back into religion Twitter land. I do love religion Twitter land. It's, it's really a treat. Yeah, and I I enjoy getting to creep on your life in religion Twitter land. Nowhere else do just strangers call you beloved. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I believe that. And I think that the way people all over the world connect through podcasts is the same way that Hildegard's letters and writings connected and spread people out throughout the world. I mean, she was talking to popes, she was talking to laity, she was talking to, you know, other theologians all of these people and connecting these ideas throughout the like limited scope that she could in her time. And like we talked about a little bit in independence, the idea that she could spread more and connect more ideas to more people would totally be something within her ethos. So when, when she was writing, was she writing to specific people or was she writing to have things distributed? She was writing to the specific people from what I could tell, but 
I think she understood that some of these things were going to get distributed. I feel it's a little Paul-like in that way, where she's like, here, I'm going to write this letter to you, but, like, if you publish it... (laughs) (laughs) Paul would probably have some words. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, I still have one more point, and I think this might be the strongest point. Okay. um, Which is all about creating um, opportunities for adult learning. And this is especially important for Hildegard because she didn't start writing music or studying science or developing her own theological ideas or writing down her visions until she was 38 years old. That, yeah. That Which is... I think is a crazy that, one, she made it to 38 in right, 11 whatever. No idea what the lifespan yeah. uh, was back then. But that she did a ton of learning as an adult. Uh, and this is one of those things where... I really wanted to find a like amazing think piece about the connections of podcasting to adult learning. Uh, and just it, the physical, the one article that I needed just did never materialize. Um, so I had to sort of piece together some stuff. Okay. But podcasting has sort of very specifically become mostly focused in nonfiction and educational content and has developed this rise of this genre called edutainment. And so if you think of any podcast you listen to, like anything nonfiction that also tells a story can probably count as edutainment. So like some of the top podcasts on iTunes are like current affairs shows like the New York Times, the daily shows from NPR, pod save America, Malcolm Gladwell's show, revisionist history, stuff you should know, all of these things that are about teaching you something new. Sunday school for heathens. Sunday school for heathens <laughs> um, are all about teaching people new things outside of the traditional classroom environment, which Hildegard never got an opportunity to really experience. And 40% of people between 25 and 54 listen to podcasts. And so if you think that 40% of people in that age group that Hildegard was when she was doing all of her learning and all of her growing are still enriching their lives with knowledge through the format of podcasting, I think is something that she would totally support. The idea that this creates an opportunity for people to not need school or after school be able to continue to enrich their lives with the way she was able to enrich her life once she was an adult is super in her wheelhouse. But is she entertaining? Is her writing entertaining? I didn't get to read any of her writings. Oh, you didn't read any parts? I didn't read any parts because I have had a weird long week and my Latin isn't very good. (laughs) I I think there are translations. I'm sure there are. (laughs) But I think if it wasn't at least kind of entertaining, people wouldn't have been like coming from everywhere. And she had to be entertaining enough to be writing morality plays. That's fair. She was a playwright. She did write a play. So she's at least a little bit entertaining. I'd have to look. Um, There's there's a a Hildegard bot I follow on Twitter that just uh, gives random quotes of her. Yeah, you gotta tell me how entertaining Hildegard is. (laughs) Every once in a while, there are some quips. She sure. Be, She's a little quippy. She can be quippy. She also invented her own language. What? <laughs> it's called the lingua ignata, and uh, <laughs> that's all I that really knows about it. It's called the unknown language, is literally what she wrote it. She wrote it for mystical purposes, so I wonder if this is the language that her visions come in. So, she was writing in tongues? Sure. Because, I mean, she might have also spoken tongues. But... Yeah. <laughs> So I think that she was totally entertaining. Also, anybody who has visions is not not entertaining. Uh, I think, there's I, think I would challenge you on that. I think there are some people that are maybe not entertaining and just alarming. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I guess I'll give you that. 
Um, All right. So those are my big arguments on why Hildegard should be the patron saint of podcasts. So what do you think, Brian? Have I even convinced you a little bit? Well, to be fair, there are a lot of patronages that make zero sense. It's true. On the side against her, she has not cured anyone in any podcast-related miracles. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) That we're aware of. Sure. (laughs) I mean, that would be her ace in the hole. Yes. But given that she existed many centuries before podcasts. <laughs> well, she mean, she could still... Oh, like you could listen to a podcast about her and be cured? Yeah. If anyone hearing this is suddenly cured of something, let us know. Please, no, please, <laughs> please. We'll send it to the Catholic Church. <laughs> Short of that, not a bad case. She could be down for a podcast. I'll give it to her. All right. So now, everybody, we've convinced Brian, so go out, convince your friends, and start a campaign to make Hildegard the patron saint of podcasts. We've convinced me, the person who is not an authority on anything. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Me, an authority on nothing, convinces Brian, an authority on other nothing, that Hildegard should be the patron saint of podcasts. And now it's official. This is as official as her being a doctor of the church. Yeah, we did it. We have all the power. We made it. Well, maybe I'll tweet at the Pope later. Yeah. And let him know. I'll. We're going to come up with a quippy hashtag between now and the time this podcast comes out, and we will start a Twitter campaign. Religion Twitter will be with us. Yeah, we just want everyone to get on board. We're all going to tweet at the Pope all together. Yeah. And see if we can get him to agree. Sure. <laughs> the first patronage Twitter campaign. <laughs> Pope Francis would probably actually be really into that. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Or whichever aide is helping him do Twitter. Yeah. Would be into that. Whichever, which, who, whichever intern is the Twitter intern for the Pope. <laughs> Set whatever seminary student gets that job. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I have, Ryan. So let's take a break, and then we'll come back for even more fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And do, do I say it this time? Or? And it's time for the patronage pop quiz, where I tell Brian the story of a saint, and he has to guess who it's the patron of. I'm ready. I've been preparing for this my whole life. I'm really excited to see if you get this one. <laughs> if you do, I will be really, really impressed. And if you don't, I will be really proud of myself. Is it a weird one? It's not a super weird one. I told you to put a pin in a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux in the story of Hildegard because he came up a couple of times in my research, and so I wanted to know more about who this guy was, and it turns out that he is also a saint and a doctor of the church. Excellent. So I figured he was as good a fit for our patronage this week as anyone, and he is in fact the patron saint of a couple of things. So I'll tell you now, this is not a trick question. Great. I've only done that to you once. It's true, and it was Hildegard. Yeah. So here we are. Let's chat a little bit about him. Bernard of Clairvaux grew up from a wealthy family in 1090, just before the First Crusade. He had a great taste for literature and devoted himself for some time to poetry. In his success in his studies won the admiration of his teachers. He wanted to excel in literature in order to take up study of the Bible. He had a special devotion to the Virgin Mary, and he would later write several works about the Queen of Heaven. When Bernard grew older, he trained to be a soldier, but he felt he could serve God better without killing people. He had some friends and family members who agreed with him, and so he did an experiment with these family members and friends. He had them all live, work, and pray together in his parents' home for about a year, and his peacemaking skills were made evident as a result of this experience. (laughs) He organized the real world. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. He organized the religious real world all while he was a teenager. (laughs) 
Excellent. And you'll see, following people is a thing that happens to Bernard a lot. Uh, after the death of his mother, when he was 19, he sought admission to the Cisterian Order. Is that how you spell that? Say that? C-I-S-T-E-R-C-I-A-N. That's right. Cisterian Order. And at the age of 22, while he was at a prayer in church, he felt the calling of God to enter the monastery of Citeaux. In 1113, St. Stephen Harding had just succeeded St. Albrecht as the third abbot of Citeaux. And when Bernard and 30 other young noblemen of Burgundy sought admission into the monastery. In class. It's literally, and it's all because of Bernard. Literally, his testimony was so irresistible that 30 of his friends, brothers, relatives, and his widowed father all joined him <laughs> in monastic life. Amazing. Uh, which, of course, meant that they needed to open more monasteries because they didn't exactly have enough room for these 30-odd random dudes who had all decided <laughs> to join all at the same time. Uh, so Bernard took it upon himself to start opening new Cistercian monasteries across the world so that they could accommodate all of these extra numbers. Okay. Because apparently he was really, really good at convincing people to uh, join the Cistercian order. Good for him. Yeah, I know, right? During the Great Schism between the two popes, he took the side of the French pope, which was Innocent II, and did a lot of political work and a lot of theological work to reunite the church back under what he believed was the correct pope. He also helped organize the Second Crusade. Okay. And I have a couple of funny stories about Bernard Ooh. trying to live a holy life, because uh, why not? I love it. Um, yeah. One day, to cool down his lustful temptation, Bernard threw himself into ice-cold water. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> Another time, while sleeping in an inn, a prostitute was introduced naked beside him, and he saved his chastity by running. I'm, I'm sorry. A prostitute was introduced <laughs> beside him? Yeah. What? I assume a naked woman climbed into his bed. <laughs> that sounds like someone, like, plopped her down. <laughs> Here you go, dude. Uh, yeah, so he saved his chastity by running away. Good for him. I know. Isn't that super, super weird? <laughs> um, some of the miracles that were attributed to him. One time he restored the power of speech to an old man so that he might confess his sins before he died. Okay. Another time, an immense number of flies that had invested the church of Foigny died instantly after he excommunicated them. <laughs> That's amazing. Yep. <laughs> Isn't that wild? He also wrote a lot of theological works and a lot of liturgical music, which is where he connects back to Hildegard of Bingen. And he became a pen pal of Hildegard's, in addition to a whole bunch of the popes who sought his advice and enjoyed his writings and admired the holy life that he led. Um, he was known as uh, very intelligent and very holy. His most popular work is Apologica. And at the time of his death in 1153, there were some 400 Cistercian monasteries in Europe, 163 of which he had founded. All right. Which is a lot. In comparison to Hildegard, he was canonized in 1174 and declared a doctor of the church in 1830. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Brian, what is St. Bernard of Clairvaux the patron saint of? Hmm. Is he the patron of Cistercians? He is. <gasps> You knew how to get around that one. <laughs> that was an easy one. That was an uh, easy one. A harder one that I, I was considering is, is he also a patron of soldiers? He is not, uh, actually. He is a patron of the Knights Templar. Okay. Which at that time totally counted. Okay. Because of the whole crusade thing. That makes sense. His patronizers are reasonably short. Beekeepers, bees, candle makers, chandlers, cisterians, 
the Knights Templar, wax melters, and wax refiners. I think bees are the symbol of the Cistercian order, which is why he gets bees. And then wax would also go with all of that. Mm -hmm. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So they're all kind of tied back into that Cistercian thing. Yeah. I would not have gotten... I would not have gotten bees from his story. (laughs) No. I wanted it to be flies because of the excommunication thing. But no, bees. Also, I... You can't excommunicate an animal. (laughs) He excommunicated a whole bunch of flies and it worked. (laughs) I thought that there's like arguments about like them not having souls. So like, I don't, (laughs) what is he doing? I don't know. He made a choice. It went with it. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is our episode for today. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for letting me take the reins for a little bit. And thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, let us know. You can tweet at us at schoolnumber4heathens at gmail.com. And also please tweet at the Pope that Hildegard should be patron saint of podcasts. Yeah, hashtag forthcoming. Hashtag I will send that out on Twitter uh, <laughs> when we make it up. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, also at school number 4 heathens If you have ideas for other saints that need weird patronages, email them to us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And iTunes is dead. There's no more iTunes. Go on Apple Podcasts <laughs> and write us a review or rate us. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for his awesome music during the show. Thank you to David Griffin for editing way more of the sound of my voice the- this week than normal. And also for your awesome logo for the show. And thank you all to you. Amen? Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm -hmm.